For more than two months, Canadians have been cooped up and physical distancing to reduce the spread of the COVID-19 pandemic. Restrictions are gradually lifting as nationally the infection rate is decreasing. But this means we are far from the end of the road. Hello and welcome to the Unpublished Cafe. I'm Ed Hand. We once again come to you from a remote location and practicing physical distancing to enhance safety. If there's one thing health experts agree on when it comes to the pandemic, a second wave. Traditionally, these virus outbreaks can come in waves. If you think back uh, about the Spanish flu 100 years ago, there were three waves, which claimed up to 70 million lives. Of course, communication is vastly better today due to technology. Now, the weather is better. Cabin fever is at an all-time high, and some emergency measures have been dialed back. Will this combination lead to a second wave, or will it be something else? Joining us to discuss what it might look like, I am pleased to be joined by Patrick Saunders-Hastings. He's the Manager of Life Sciences and Environmental Health at Jevity Consulting. And Patrick, you mentioned we need to recognize and respond to early warning signs of a second wave. What are those signs? Yeah, it's an excellent question. And so really when it comes to discussing a second wave, what will determine the emergence and overall burden of that wave is how quickly we're able to identify a spike in cases. So when we're talking about expanding our capacity and ability to respond, we're really focusing in on our ability to test and identify new cases, trace their contacts, and isolate symptomatic and infectious individuals. Does our response to the first wave, which wasn't terrific, uh, help when dealing with a second wave? Well, generally how we hope to respond to these waves, or I should say to these outbreaks, is using that test-trace-isolate framework that I just mentioned. Now, given the speed and scale at which COVID-19 has been able to spread through our communities and countries, um, our ability to do that was quickly overwhelmed. And that's why we saw this movement towards more community-wide mitigation measures that are quite costly in a number of ways. So in a lot of cases, and if we're looking say specifically at Canada, um, we're starting to see lower case rates, which is improving our ability to do that test, trace, isolate framework more than we were able to say two months ago. However, as we're starting to relax our restrictions in conjunction with that, we have this risk of seeing spikes in cases that, again, overwhelm our ability to do the more individual-focused uh, disease control efforts. And so the risk of that is that we have to revert back to the community-wide mitigation measures and have some problems with that. Yeah, I was I was going to talk about that. Restrictions are, are slowly being lifted in various provinces right now. And and. You know, we uh, Ontario had a, a big spike just yesterday. I'm wondering, do, does the public get a false sense of security about their safety when some of these restrictions are lifted? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think that really is up to the messaging of public health officials. And what we've been trying to communicate is that, while I think in a lot of cases, there is a need to start relaxing these restrictions. We need to do that in a very phased, slow, and method, um, say methodologic um, process instead of relaxing all at once. Because what we've seen is that even small increases in contact rates can lead to relatively large and very problematic spikes in cases and hospitalizations and ultimately mortality. So just because we're seeing these relaxations does not mean that the risk in any way is gone. If anything, this might be when we're at our most vulnerable because we're seeing these situations of change. So while we're starting to relax these restrictions, that in no way should be understood as a free pass to uh, re-engage business as usual as we had been before the pandemic. 
Patrick Saunders Hastings is joining us on the Unpublished Cafe. He is the Manager of Life Sciences and Environmental Health at Jevity Consulting as we discuss what a second wave might look like here in Canada. Now, we, we talked about speed and, and the speed to react is crucial. Can Canada react or at least keep up with the rapidity of the spread of the virus in the second wave? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question, and I think we'll we'll certainly be put to the test there. So one concept I'd raise would be the idea of a basic reproductive rate. I mean, each contagion has one, and it relates to the ability to, or the average number of transmissions from one infectious case in an entirely susceptible population. So with COVID-19, we believe that's between sort of two and three, meaning that the average individual will infect two to three other people. Um, in the course of their infectious period. That means that with about 10 rounds of infection going unimpeded, we could go from one case to about 60,000. So if we are engaging in this sort of phased de-escalation of restrictions improperly, our ability to test, trace, and isolate individuals will quickly be overwhelmed. Even small increases in case counts can make that impossible for our, our capacity to keep up with. And this is why we're, we're trying to do this in a very slow and phased approach rather than risking large increases that would quickly overwhelm our capacity to respond and control the outbreak. Which part of the population is most at risk of contracting in a second wave? Well, it depends a lot on how we, how we think about risk. So to this point, we tend to think of risk in the context of who is at greatest mm -hmm. risk of um, of mortality and complications from infection. And what we've seen in Canada, as, as well as globally as well, is that seniors tend to fare quite much worse, and we've had quite a bit of trouble with our long-term care homes. Now, fortunately, a lot of our testing focus is remains on those populations and in those areas, which is appropriate. But I think as we start to see schools reopen um, to, into the fall, um, there will be risks of, um, let's say, infection, uh, whether complicated or not, among a broader range of population groups. And that could be school-aged children. We're, we're certainly seeing this in uh, food processing plants right now. So we're, we're not really in a position to detect or predict, I, sh I should say, where the new wave will emerge. Um, there is a broad population risk of infection. But we do have a pretty clear idea of the population groups at greatest risk of complications from infection. If you were to predict, uh, where would you see a second wave originating in Canada? So I think geographically, we tend to have the most concern about Ontario and Quebec. Uh, there's There's been higher case numbers here. And in some ways, we are falling a little bit behind on some of our testing goals. Um, and, and our contact tracing in Ontario anyway, we are meeting our target to, um, to trace 90% of contacts within 24 hours of disease confirmation. But we do know that we're only seeing the tip of the iceberg or the tip of the tip of the iceberg. So I think generally, from a provincial point of view, that might be where the most concern is. Mm -hmm. But again, as I would mentioned, this really could emerge anywhere, and it will be up to provincial and local public health authorities to be in a position to respond quickly to that. All right. And uh, I think the uh, if we look back at the at the Spanish flu, it came in, in three waves. Do you think that we might see a third wave here, too? So what I would caution about that, and then we do hear a lot of, um, sort of insights and predictions being pulled from past pandemics, which I mm. think is reasonable. We have relatively little to anchor this to. 
But essentially every pandemic we are pulling from are influenza pandemics. So there's every chance that a coronavirus-based pandemic does not mirror the experience that we've had with influenza pandemics, including the 1918 Spanish flu, where social and cultural contexts were also quite different. Mm-hmm. So the, the most honest answer I can give you is we just don't know. Um, we're really hoping and aiming to avoid a second wave, but this could be any sort of situation from recurrent um, exponential outbreaks to slower trickles of infections that, um, that persist long term. Patrick, I want to thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Patrick Saunders Hastings, the manager of life sciences and environmental health at Jevity Consulting, a healthcare and life sciences consulting company. Now, in the battle with COVID 19, epidemiologists have been bracing for a second wave. Raywat Dionandin is the associate professor at the University of Ottawa, epidemiologist and science communicator specializing in global health. And he joins us now. And, and Raywat, what do you foresee a second wave looking like in Canada? That's an interesting question. First off, I want to say that Patrick Saunders Hastings was a PhD that I examined. So, hi, Patrick. How are you doing? He's a talented fellow. So, um, uh, how a second wave will manifest depends entirely on what we do in between now and when it happens. So, historically, every single pandemic has had a second, possibly third, fourth wave. The question is, how big will it be? And it might not even be noticeable if we do our job right. And by doing our job, I'm, I'm guessing that's test, trace, and isolate? Exactly right. And uh, not just that, but um, keeping our social distancing in place. Mm-hmm. So the uh, modeling so far suggests that uh, there are several steps that citizens can take to stop or slow the transmission of this, uh, of this disease. Among them is wearing masks, washing hands, but the most important one seems to be physical distancing. So if we can go about our lives with an open economy while maintaining a two-meter distance for the most part, then on average, the transmission drops. Remember, this is a population-level uh, investment, not an individual-level mm-hmm. thing, but everybody has a part to play. So, yeah, the the TTI is critical, the testing, tracing, and isolation, but what's more critical is that we maintain these these individual-level practices that slow the transmission. You know, South Korea was lauded for its handling of the pandemic, yet when it started opening up, it started seeing another spike, a second wave. Is that the possibility here? Because we are opening up. Yeah, it is always a possibility. Now, it's, mm-hmm. I think, a little too early to see if uh, South Korea is genuinely experiencing a second wave. Or see, there's an uptick in cases there, absolutely. Um, but I see a lot of positives in the South Korean experience. Among them is that they have the infrastructure in place to actually contact and identify those individuals that were part of that uh, new outbreak. So, as you know, uh, one person went into a couple of nightclubs and infected a bunch of other people. I don't know if we have the ability yet in Canada or any part of North America, frankly, to do that kind of a rapid tracing. So we have to look to the South Koreans as an example for how to deploy testing and tracing and the technology to do it quickly. Because um, in absence of that, I think that kind of a large-scale outbreak is almost inevitable. Why didn't Canada have the infrastructure in place? Was it just not a priority? 
Ooh, that's a, that's a tough question there. And I'm loath to second-guess public health decision-making. However, after SARS 17 years ago, many recommendations were on the table, and not many of those recommendations were taken seriously. Yes, we created the Public Health Agency of Canada, which is a great step. We did not pursue a coronavirus vaccine, as we could have at the time. And we did not really modernize our data flow pipelines to make uh, the sharing of information and, and the rapidity of, of analyses uh, more convenient. And these things are really hurting us now. Um, when it comes to acquiring the testing capacity, there's originally, early on in the pandemic, there was a global race to get the reagents, to get the swab uh, kits. And so it's understandable that lesser powerful governments don't have that negotiation power. Also, there was, you know, uh, a lack of imagination. Uh, there was a, a lack of understanding that this was a, a asymptomatic, silent pandemic. And so many of our leaders were approaching it as if it were a serious flu testing only the symptomatic cases. We know now that that was probably a mistake. We should have been testing asymptomatic people as early as possible. So there's a failure of imagination and possibly a failure of planning. But I like to look at what we can do going forward. And it's never too early or late to do things right. So going forward, we should be testing asymptomatic people absolutely with active random screening to get those cases um, before they make a dent in our population. So imagine that um, there's a community somewhere that has no known cases, but we randomly screen them anyway, and we find a couple of cases. Well, isn't that lucky? We can now descend upon them with overwhelming public health powers and quarantine and, and contact trace and prevent those handful of cases from becoming outbreaks. That's the goal. You know, COVID-19, from what we're told, doesn't like heat and humidity, and that can clamp down on the spread. And we've obviously got warmer weather, but you know, it brings more people out. You know, I, I, the one thing I'm wondering about, if heat and humidity is so, so bad for it, why is COVID spreading in India? Well, it isn't really that bad for it. I mean, uh, the modeling so far suggests that uh, a slight increase in temperature decreases transmission a little bit. A slight mm -hmm. increase in humidity decreases transmission a little bit. And the way it works is this disease is mostly spread by droplets coming out of your mouth, spraying uh, forward towards people. And with increased heat and humidity, the droplets can't go as far, but they do go far. So um, maybe they don't go two meters, but they go, you know, 1.5 mm -hmm. meters. And in a crowded enough scenario, like a, a train in India, that's more than enough. So we shouldn't bank on heat and humidity being great mitigators of this disease. When we think about MERS, the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which was also a coronavirus, that was in the dead heat of the Middle East, of the deserts, and um, it showed no sign of mitigation there. How does the amount of exposure reflect in the infection? And I, I, I'm looking at somebody who may have, who might be slightly infected by somebody who's been, you know, nearby, as opposed to a frontline worker who is, you know, dealing with COVID every day. Does the amount of exposure have an impact on how it impacts you? Yeah, it does. So um, the first level of analysis is what is the infectious dose? How much of the stuff do you need to be exposed to to actually become infected? And it's unclear what that is, but now most people seem to think that um, you need to have an intimate amount of, of conversation, for example, a business meeting, an elevator ride, uh, an intimate dinner, that sort of thing. Simply walking by somebody or being brushed by in the grocery store is probably not enough to give you an infectious dose. What is also unclear, though, is whether there's a dose-response relationship, meaning the more infectious dose you get, does that mean you mount an even greater immune response, meaning you get even sicker? And there is some evidence for that. We look at the healthcare workers who tend to get sicker than other people who are infected, and that, that might be because they're surrounded by the virus all the time. So yeah, there's definitely something to be said for infectious dose and possibly a dose-response relationship. 
Ray White, Dianandon is the Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa, joining us in the Unpublished Cafe as we talk about a possible second wave of COVID-19 in Canada. And uh, we talk about herd immunity. And uh, can we get there when we don't know how long that immunity could last? That is an excellent question. And that's one of the reasons that um, I don't recommend that people seek out infection for the purposes of granting immunity. In the West Coast, we hear stories of COVID parties of people trying to get sick just to get immune. The problem is... Um, Recovery does seem to confer some immunity, but it might be a tepid kind of immunity depending upon how sick you get, and not everyone recovers the same way or the same rate or the same you know, disabilities. Um, and we don't know, as you say, how long that immunity lasts, which is why the best way to get to herd immunity is through a vaccine, because we can calibrate a vaccine to give the appropriate amount of immune response with minimal side effects. There are people who are recovering from this disease who are really struggling with long-term disabilities, lung fibrosis, kidney damage, heart disease, etc. And we don't want to put people through that unnecessarily. So seeking infection just to get immune is a bad idea, in my opinion, because we don't yet understand what immunity means. Do you expect a third wave in Canada? Well, it's much too early to say. Um, mm-hmm. if, there is a, if the second wave comes, it'll probably be in the fall. And I'm an optimist. I like to think that we will all do our jobs right, and that second wave will not be as profound as the first wave. And if we get that done right, then maybe the third wave will be even lesser a problem, and that will probably come sometime you know, next winter. And, and by then, I like to think we will have a whole new pantheon of treatments and tools at our disposal. So um, we're having great stories of treatments coming out of labs right now, monoclonal antibodies, convalescent plasmas, uh, drugs that are retasked for treating uh, COVID. So that will help enormously in mitigating the impact in our societies. So in general, uh, epidemics like this, yes, come in multiple waves. The question is, how big are they and how long between the peaks? And again, if we do our jobs right, we can get the the distancing between the peaks in months rather than weeks and the height of those peaks may be imperceptible if everyone does their part. Yeah, fingers crossed. Ray Watt, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Ray Watt Dianandon is the Associate Professor at the University of Ottawa. He's an epidemiologist and a science communicator. And this leads to our unpublished vote question. What do you feel will lead most to a second wave of COVID-19? Relaxed restrictions, not wearing masks, or lack of testing? You can log on and vote right now at unpublished.vote and have your voice heard. I want to thank Patrick Saunders-Hastings of Health Consultants Jevity, as well as Ray Watt Dianandon, epidemiologist and associate professor at the University of Ottawa. As well, I'd like to thank you for listening, voting, and engaging with unpublished media. We've seen large growth in the number of people using the sites, and we thank you for engaging with us. We look forward to bringing you more information on COVID-19 to keep you abreast of the pandemic. Thanks for listening to the Unpublished Cafe. Stay safe. I'm Ed Hand.